Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. When George Washington died in December 1799, it changed Martha Washington's legal status. Just as she had when she was widowed for the first time in 1757, Martha once again became an independent person in the eyes of the law. She was no longer in the shadow of her husband's legal identity. So what did this mean for Martha and other unmarried or widowed elite white women who ran businesses powered by slavery in early Virginia? How did they negotiate contracts, oversee enslaved labor, and manage their estates, all while navigating society's expectations for women of their status? On today's episode, Alexi Garrett joins us to discuss three such women, Martha Washington, Catherine Flood McCall, and Annie Henry Christian, who by choice or by fate oversaw major business operations in the early republic. Garrett is a Ph.D. candidate in history at the University of Virginia, and she recently completed a research fellowship here at the Washington Library. Now, before we get started, we just want to say thanks again and welcome to all our recent subscribers. We're glad to have you here, and thanks as well to our longtime listeners for your support. And now, let's try to account for women in the business of slavery with Alexi Garrett. All right, Alexi Garrett, uh, welcome to the program. You are presently a uh, research fellow here at the Washington Library. Your time is coming to a close, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to go back to the cold confines of Charlottesville, Virginia. (laughs) Oh, darn. (laughs) Pretty soon. Um, What brought you to Mount Vernon? What are you you researching? What What are you working on? Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Virginia, and I'm trying to finish up my dissertation this year. And so I have spent the past three months here at Mount Vernon looking at Martha Washington as almost a business owner. Now, she's not actually owning a business, but she's um, managing George's estate Mm -hmm. and his enslaved people and her own enslaved people after George dies. So I'm particularly interested in Martha's periods of widowhood, mm-hmm. of which she had two. The first one was when she was much younger. She was married to Daniel Park Custis, and um, she was a widow after him for about uh, less than actually two years, about a year and a half before she married George. And then she was a widow for about two years um, before her own death and the second time after George. And so I'm interested in her widowhoods because legally she is of a different caste mm-hmm. than if she were married. And those are because of femme covert and femme soul laws. And I'm happy to talk about those. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, we sh- definitely should because the law is very much an important part of your story and how the law treats women mm-hmm. and women property owners and women's ability to own and operate businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's come back to Martha kind of at the end of our, sure. our talk today uh, because she fits into a larger project that is that is looking at, uh, it would be fair to say, women, capitalism, and the, the business and politics of slavery in the mm-hmm. early republic. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to hear some about your research. We don't want to give all the way the keys to the kingdom because, <laughs> you know, s- someday you may turn it into a book and... Um, so, you know, hold back a little bit of, okay. of the good stuff for okay. when you're on the book tour later in life. Um, high hopes. High hopes. But let's, so let's, let's talk in general. I mean, you, you mentioned these very interesting legal terms here a moment ago, mm-hmm. femme, mm-hmm. covert, and femme, soul. What was a women's 
a woman's legal status mm-hmm. in 18th century America? Sure. Well, I'm going to be talking about white women in particular, okay. so I think I just should put that out there first of all. But sure. yeah, so we have kind of the common law right now of femme covert, which means covered women, and that is if you are a married woman. So if you are a married woman, which over 90% of women did get married in early America, you were a covered woman. You were a femme covert in the eyes of the law, which means you are a legal non-entity in the eyes of the law because your husband is your legal provider. Mm -hmm. You are a covered woman. Your husband is covering you in the eyes of the law. So if you have real estate, you own it. And no matter if you get married or not, you own that. But your husband can control it, mm-hmm. right? Now, so your real estate is owned by you as a married woman. But your – so that's um, that's realty, right? But personality, which is mm-hmm. movable goods generally, mm-hmm. so the furniture, the jewels, and unfortunately enslaved people, that is um, owned and managed as well by – your husband. And so if you are um, an uncovered woman, a femme soul, you are an unmarried woman. So this occurs for widows or people who just never get married who are single women. And we're also, of course, talking about adulthood. This doesn't apply to children. Mm-hmm. But so That's if, a whole other category. Yeah, right there, which, yeah, yeah. So, and even with what age does childhood begin and end? Right, you know? which I think is a debatable thing. The age of majority yeah. is usually 17, 18, depending on the state. But yeah, so if you are a femme soul, that means you're a widow or you are a single woman. And although you cannot vote or serve on a jury, you are legally able to act like a man in other mm-hmm. ways. You can sue or be sued. You can sign contracts. You can own your own business. You can control its profits. And so uh, about 10% of women in their life were femme souls uh, in the sense of never got married. Mm-hmm. Though, of course, widowhood was uh, a widely experienced phenomenon for both men and women. But, of course, it affected the genders differently based on the law. Yeah. So in you, for your research, you're particularly interested in those femme souls, yes. right? Mm-hmm. That 10% mm-hmm. who either by virtue of never being married mm-hmm. or was widowed, mm-hmm. Um, have full legal control of their property. Mm-hmm. What attracted you to that class of white women? Sure. Well, I can start answering that by what got me into this project. Sure, let's do that. So uh, when I came to graduate school back in 2014, I knew I was interested in women and gender in the early republic, but I did not have a specific focus. And so then my advisor, Alan Taylor, came across um, this 1,000-page court case document at the Library of Virginia and said, hey, Alexi needs a master's essay. <laughs> Go take a look at this. <laughs> so, Here's your project. Like, yeah, yeah, now figure it out, No, which is great. And so I did figure it out. And so what this court case was, uh, it was fascinating, actually. So there's a woman named Catherine Flood McCall, and she went by Caddy or Kate. And so I'll call her Kate here. She was a never-married woman who was uh, born in Tappahannock to Archibald McCall, who was a Scottish merchant, and um, Catherine Flood, who was a Virginia native. And so I'll go into them more in detail, but uh, just to explain the court case, Catherine had actually owned two nail manufactories, one in Alexandria and one in Richmond. And um, William Stewart was the overseer she managed uh, for the Alexandria site. And is he a white overseer? He's a white overseer. Yep. And he actually was a clerk in Archibald's practice that kind of grew up with the family. So, uh, William Stewart. So, so what this court case is about is 
Catherine says she sold the Alexandria Enterprise to William. Mm-hmm. Then William died. William had debts when he died. His creditors came after Catherine mm-hmm. because they said, no, you're liable for his debts because actually you never sold it to him. And he incurred those debts under you, like mm-hmm. as your employee. And of course, she's trying to say, no, no, I sold it to him. Those debts are his own. Don't come after me. So that's what's creating yeah. this court case. And so what's awesome about it for me as a researcher is that it has letters upon letters mm-hmm. upon letters between Kate and William and William and Kate back and forth. Most of it is William to Kate. So looking at these letters, I thought to myself, okay, what do I do with the master's essay from mm-hmm. this? And what came out of it was looking at just the uh, – the idea of gendered slave management in a more urban setting and kind of what I've been calling a proto-industrial setting. Because mm-hmm. um, during this time period in the early Republic, we are not – when we think about Richmond, for example, we think of Tredegar Ironworks, right? right? We are not in that. That is civil war, right? Yeah. This is years, decades before that. And so we have Alexandria and Richmond and other urban centers and the federal city just growing. And in fact, it's they're growing like crazy during this time period. And so – Wooden buildings need lots of nails. And mm-hmm. also with Jefferson's embargo happening, I think I also have found that people are founding these nail manufactories and these yeah. blacksmith shops with the predicted increase of domestic manufacturing, right? Because the embargo is looming. So, but mostly it's because these cities are growing. And so, anyways, uh, Kate McCall and her father found these, but it, she is the one who owns them because of this court case that shows mm-hmm. me that because they're coming after her. And um, the lawyer summaries that kind of are throughout the court case also say, like, Kate is the owner. Kate is the owner. So what's so fascinating is that um, even though she never visited the sites of labor, because that would be uncouth, that would Mm -hmm. be unladylike of someone of her elite status, because she was the largest slave owner in Essex County during her lifetime for over 20 years, in fact. And so she was the ninth largest slave owner in a county overall, but the largest female slave owner. How many people did she have enslaved? She had at the height, I think she had it 30 in people, people people enslaved. Yeah, yeah, enslaved. So it fluctuated year by year, um, but that's generally what she had. And yeah, so what's interesting about her, there's so many things that are interesting about her, but, um, you know, the fact that she was getting sued, the fact mm-hmm. that this court case exists in her name is because she's a femme soul. Yeah. If she were married, it would be under her husband. And even if in the court case it was saying, well, they were owned by Catherine originally, but, you know, da-da-da-da, like, sure. But, like, this court case is her and her alone because she is not married. And um, what it revealed to me for kind of the master's essay was just looking at, even though you're not at the sites of labor, because that would be unseemly as mm-hmm. a lady, uh, you she still controlled this business completely, and she controlled what happened to the business. She controlled what happened to the enslaved people. William, of course, was managing it at the site for her, but he had to ask permission for everything. He had to ask permission for her if she, he could buy a bed so he could just... Mm-hmm. Stay there, right? And what's interesting too is that uh, there's there's some great anecdotes that come forth from this court case where uh, Catherine warns William one time in a letter saying, you know, watch out for George, just he's wily. So he's talking. She's talking about an enslaved person at the site, and then a month later, she takes out an advertisement 
in the newspaper saying mm-hmm. George has run away. Oh, so wow. she knows her enslaved people well. Mm-hmm. They've grown up with her and her father in Tappahannock. So she's using her own slaves and some hired out enslaved people to work at the sites in Alexandria. Yep. She and Archibald eventually moved to Richmond. But that's much later in their life. So I'm kind of more focusing um, for this part, I, I would say. Mm-hmm. I'm focus- the, the court case focuses on Alexandria yeah. more. But, um, yeah, so... And she's managing all this from Tappahannock? From Tappahannock, and, yes. And can you describe where that is just for folks Sure. Here? So if you're looking at the state of the Virginia, Tappahannock is considered the northern neck region. So okay. it's kind of north uh, northeast, and it's by the Rappahannock River. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I actually had the opportunity to go to her home. Uh, this, which still like, exists. Like, which still exists, which is amazing. And that's actually one of the great things about the George Washington Fellowship here is that it's primarily a writing fellowship and it gives you the time, if you need to go do more research, uh, it gives you the time to do that. Yeah. So yeah, I was able to go there for a few days. And so the house that Archibald and Catherine lived in still exists and is owned by St. Margaret's School, which is a boarding school mm-hmm. for uh, kind of eighth grade through 12th grade for women. And... It was really fun going there and, and learning more and just existing in the space that my historical subject had lived. And there's also great documentation on Catherine through a travel journal that somebody named Robert Hunter has mm-hmm. left behind and has been since published. And Robert Hunter was like a very distant cousin of the McCalls. He was a the son of a um, British merchant. Mm-hmm. So after the American Revolutionary War, he came across to the States to kind of collect pre-war debts. And so he wintered for like three months with Archibald and Kate mm-hmm. in this house. And that also gives us a picture of what kind of woman Kate was. And Kate was very much um, a plantation mistress woman, but she was also highly educated. He, he remarks about how she's able to keep up in fascinating and intellectual conversations with him. Um, and so uh, that actually makes me think of another story I will tell. But just for a little bit of background, um, Kate was born in uh, Tappahannock in Essex County to Catherine Flood and Archibald McCall. Um, Catherine, her f- mother, died at childbirth, mm-hmm. like a couple days after her childbirth. She had an older sister named Betsy. During the American Revolutionary War, however, Archibald was a loyalist. So he took his girls and fled Whoops. back to the UK. Yeah. Too bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but she, she and Betsy were educated in boarding schools, kind of in London and Edinburgh. But unfortunately, Betsy died. Mm-hmm. So then Archibald only had Kate left, and then they had to petition after the war to come back over. But because they had the connections with the Flood family, which is also connected to the Peachy family in the Northern Neck region, these elite old families, he was able to come back. Mm-hmm. So, so he had some good connections. He did he have some on. great connections, yes. And so when he came back, that's the period of when Catherine's kind of late teens, early 20s, and that's when Robert Hunter comes, mm-hmm. okay? So... What was Kate like as a slave manager, right? How do I find that out? What was it like? Well, I had this court case that's later in her life. Mm-hmm. But then I have this journal from Robert that also shows me what she was like kind of in a plantation sense or a house domestic uh, slave manager sense. And there is uh, a shocking, uh, and you'll see why I use that word, a shocking Example in this diary of Robert where um, they are at dinner. So Archibald and Kate and Robert are at dinner at their house. And he says in his diary entry one night, we had an excellent dinner. 
We gave the Negroes a shock, and then we went to bed. What does a shock mean? What does that mean? I've been trying to figure out this question, and if listeners have any ideas, they are <laughs> welcome to help email help me and email yeah. me. But what I think is going on is that electrical experiments at this time are also in vogue for the elite, if you're able. Oh, really? Yeah, so, so and doing kind of experiments and performances with electricity is fun, mm-hmm. and I think they're having fun with electricity in their home using their enslaved people as part of that painful fun. So... That, I think, that vignette right there shows you what she thinks about the humanity of enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Um, She also rents out her enslaved people to for one month, three months, six months, year-long contracts to neighbors in Tappahannock. Um, So she really is a a plantation mistress, but she's not married, Mm -hmm. right? So she's not the stereotypical mistress we think about uh, when it comes to kind of secretly having to figure things out in a patriarchal world, maybe behind the husband's back or being extremely violent in the home to enslave people. I don't see violence besides the shock part, which is actually quite violent, I think. Um, Even if it doesn't maim the enslaved person, it's Mm -hmm. still shocking them for fun. That's That's not right. And so it shows that she knows her enslaved people well in that, um, yeah, I guess it show I guess my research shows she knows her enslaved people well because she warns about runaways. She rents out specific enslaved people to specific neighbors and will sue them if they do yeah. not return her property to her with the proper stockings and clothing as promised. Mm-hmm. So I have evidence of that too. So So she's perfectly willing to go after people for violation of contract. And she can because she's not married. Yeah. And she can do that in her own name. And so Yes, yeah, so she is a fascinating character in my dissertation, which is entitled Single Women and the Business of Slavery mm-hmm. in Early National Virginia. So Catherine Flood McCall is one of my main characters, as is Annie Henry Christian, mm-hmm. one of Patrick Henry's sisters. And Annie's interesting because uh, she also takes over a proto-industrial enterprise, but she's a widow, so she takes it over from her dead husband. Mm-hmm. So she and her husband are... Colonel William Christian, who was a Revolutionary War hero, also a friend of Patrick Henry's. She and her husband and their kids and their slaves move out to what was then the frontier, and which is now um, Bullock County, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and he owns a salt mine out there. This is 1786, or say 1785. And they so this is still when Kentucky is part of Virginia. Yes, called the and Kentucky so, District. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so they're out there. They own a salt mine there, and it is the most um, kind of important industry out there because there's no refrigeration, and they need. They need salt to preserve food. And so actually, Honor Sachs's book, Home Rule, talks uh-huh. about this in Chapter 2 a lot. So check that out if you're interested in Annie even more. But what, what I'm kind of focusing on is that uh, is her period of widowhood. For the four years she lived before she passed away from sickness. And so a year after she and William moved out there, he dies from an Indian attack. And so then it's her job to take over the salt mine, mm-hmm. the, the family business. And what's fascinating is that she pays off its debts and she keeps it running. And uh, her only child at the time was a son who uh, was not old enough to take over the the salt mine at his father's death. And of course, this goes back to these patriarchal laws, right? Mm-hmm. Husband's, husband dies. That should go to the next heir, the next male heir, which is the son, but he's not old enough. He's still a kid, so it goes to the widow. Now, her son-in-law, Alexander Bullitt, really wants to take control of this. This is, so I shouldn't say she didn't have just one son, but her, she had sons and daughters, but her 
only son was too young, but mm-hmm. her daughter was married to this guy named Alexander Bullet, and he tried to take control of it over her, and she did not let that happen. So she was a business owner, her business manager in her own right, mm-hmm. and an owner for four years of her life. And so looking at Kate and Annie and Martha, I'm looking at slave management from elite white women in Virginia during the early republic and thinking about how not only are they managing enslaved people on a plantation, but also in an urban setting Mm -hmm. or a frontier setting, right, or both. And I'm looking at their slave management, their land management, paying off debts, their business acumen as labor. Mm -hmm. So it is work they are doing. Yeah. And looking at their work, I'm able to see a range of labor that they're performing, And it depends on where they're living and what their marriage status is, Mm -hmm. right, what the law is. And so on one end, I have Catherine Flood McCall. She never gets married. She is on a plantation and runs two nail manufactories, these proto-industrial businesses, in two very urban centers. And she, so on the plantation, she's renting out enslaved people to neighbors. She's having domestic enslaved people in her home that she's managing, but then she's also managing blacksmiths Mm -hmm. and nail workers in cities, right? Then in the middle, I'd say we have Annie Henry Christian because she's also working this proto-industrial enterprise, a salt mine. She's managing the salt mine and paying off its debts, Um, but she was not never married. She was yeah. married. This wasn't her domain, her whole adult life. It was in the last four years, right? And then we have Martha on the other end where she's married twice, widowed twice, but she's mostly a plantation mistress, mm-hmm. right? She doesn't really run her own proto-industrial kind of enterprises. Now, she does have to help transfer the property of the grist mill at Mount Vernon and the fishery to Lawrence Lewis, which is George's nephew. But she's, besides that, she's not really yeah. like running these enterprises. And so, yeah, so I'm just looking at like what kind of slave management looks like in different settings mm-hmm. in Virginia at this time. What I'm also finding really interesting is that During this time period, to the public, it's very acceptable for women to be slave owners, but not as acceptable to be business owners. Huh. Yes, when you're elite, right? Why, why is that? So I'm not talking about the tavern-owning women. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the woman who owns a hat shop who has one or two enslaved people. My yeah. focus, of course, is on elite, wealthy, large slave-holding women. Right, the 18th century 1%. Yes, <laughs> yes. And... Being a slave owner, if you're this type of woman, if you're a Martha, a Kate, an Annie, being a slave owner, uh, being a slave owner is widely accepted and totally fine, right? Um, And in fact, that's how many men, powerful men, get their wealth and their property, as as we know from many histories at this point. You know, I did a snapshot of Essex County's tax lists in Mm -hmm. 1800, and of all taxpayers, right? So this isn't everyone in the county, but of all taxpaying people, more taxpaying women own slaves than men. Really? But if you're going to be a very large slave-owning, taxpaying person, you're most likely going to be male. Mm -hmm. So why do you think this is? I think 
very generally, I haven't figured out like the specifics of it really for every county or every mm -hmm. state, but I generally I think it's just because of these patriarchal, cultural, and legal codes, especially with bequeathing property. Mm -hmm. So if you're a mom and dad and you're writing your will, you're trying to give your kids property, you're going to give your sons land in the house, real estate, and you're going to give your daughter movable goods, the jewelry, the furniture, the enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Because someday your daughter will grow up and take those things as a dowry into the house of a new husband. Yeah. Right? So that's why I think on taxpayer lists, at least, it looks like more taxpaying women-owned slaves than men. But what does that mean culturally? Well, I think culturally, if you never get married, you have more of an intense relationship with a wider variety of enslaved people that mm -hmm. you own than if you were married, right? So because your husband generally takes care of more agricultural uh, domains of, of slave management. So what's interesting that I was getting at earlier is that being an elite woman and owning a business is not as great in the public eye. And what that what that's showing me, or how, how I've kind of come to that conclusion, is that with Annie for example, there's lots of letters right after her husband dies that she's writing to family and friends mm -hmm. saying, oh, woe is me. I don't know how I'm going to pay off these debts. I don't know how I'm going to run this business. I don't know anything, which is like a great, uh, that is almost herself complimenting herself because she's an elite lady. Yeah. Why would she know that, right? That's mm -hmm. not her domain. That is her husband's domain. Oh, but lo and behold, in the same letter, and then the letters over the next four years and the accounts from the next four years show she know exactly who she's paying off, mm -hmm. all the debts she's paying off to whom you give this many bushels of corn and this many gallons of whiskey to so-and-so to pay off this debt. So there's actually evidence as well before her husband dies with, with letters between her and her husband where he's mentioning to her specifically, make sure to give so-and-so yeah. this much. And when you're managing, you, and, and it's like not even, it's specific information, but it's not so specific where it's brand new information mm -hmm. to her. It's referencing information she would have already known about the business. So with respect to her, I, I, mean, I guess I have two questions. One, is that her putting on a performance for her relatives? Mm -hmm. And then two, because you know, you're right as you, when you were saying um, you know, that the public perception of a woman running her own business would have been a, you know, a negative uh, and almost in a lot of ways would be a kind of a, has a mirror in politics. You know, we, there's this idea that, that if a woman tried to insert herself in the, in the political realm, you know, people would say she's unsexed herself, mm -hmm. you know, that she has stepped Too out. masculine. Yeah, she has stepped, stepped outside the feminine mm -hmm. sphere. So when she's writing those letters, is she putting on a performance because she knows the expectations back home? Mm -hmm. And then two, is, that, uh, is her competency in running the business before her husband passes away, is that also a reflection of the fact of where they are geographically mm -hmm. and that it's, it's, it's necessary for her right. to participate yes. in the enterprise? Yes. Now, I think, yes, definitely for the latter question, Yes, I think it was necessary for both of them because they are relatively isolated mm -hmm. out there. Um, and what their their home as well is actually where Louisville, Kentucky is today. That's more – well, okay, Bullets County is where her salt mine was, but then Louisville is kind of where her family moved to later. But, yeah, no, being out there on the western frontier, I do think she, she had to know more of the business than maybe she would have liked mm -hmm. <laughs> because of the necessity of location. But, you know, Kate McCall, she doesn't have a husband right. to control things for her or to give her that coverture, to give her that 
ladydom protection, like, oh, the husband will take care of all of this, not me, right? So she doesn't have that. But she does have a father yeah. who could be doing a lot of this for her. But ultimately, she is the owner. But what's interesting, that kind of supports my argument about the private sphere of women definitely understanding businesses versus the public sphere they put on of, no, I'm not a part of that, <laughs> um, yeah. is... It's Archibald, her father, who advertises for the wares, the nails, the iron rod, the scotch brandy at the two nail manufactories, Mm -hmm. right? So when you see advertisements, it's like, you know, come down to McCall's Basin on the edge of the canal in Richmond, and it's signed Archibald McCall. But when you're looking at this court case, she's the owner. She's She's running it. She is talking to William about the day-to-day management. So they so they very clearly kind of understand the social dynamic that they're in, and, and they've got to put on a, I guess, a marketing front. Mm-hmm. Would that be a good way? Yeah, to I think it? that's fair, definitely. And something I've discovered. Is he Don Draper? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't watch that show, but I appreciate your oh, cultural you. <laughs> appetite there. Yes, but um, <laughs> no. So with Martha, what I've also discovered, which is interesting, is. During her marriages, well, actually, I just really mostly focus on her marriage to George Washington. During her marriage to George, when it comes to the accounts that she's, the business activities that she's doing within the domestic sphere, it's very much within the domestic sphere. She's, she is, um, you know, buying paint for renovations. She's getting different, um, she, she's just basically ordering uh, linens and things like that. And, and if you've read Mary Thompson's new book, which is amazing, it's called The Only Unavoidable Subject of Regret, George Washington's Slavery and the Enslaved Community at Mount Vernon. That's a brand new book this year. It's been very helpful for my research. If you read her book, she does show how Martha ultimately um, is in charge of the domestic sphere mm-hmm. of the home when it comes to managing enslaved people. And she has um, enslaved seamstresses uh, mm-hmm. that she oversees every afternoon to teach them how to sew, how to knit, how to cut cloth. So that's her domain, especially as a married woman. Now, when she's a widow for those two years, I'm noticing she has the help of white male managers, like farm managers, like James Anderson. But ultimately, she's dipping into this more masculine world of agricultural management, where she asks, um, or, or yeah, she has James Anderson and other people help her on her behalf, but she ultimately uh, advertises for runaway slaves, mm-hmm. which she actually does. So she advertises for runaway slaves as a widow, but she also advertises for the fishery. She also advertises for the sale of a donkey. Mm-hmm. So she's dipping more into that kind of masculine world because George isn't around, you know, but then these farm managers ultimately help her with it too. So that's another thing we need to think about when it comes to women business owners, women slave owners during this time period. They're still relying on middling white male management, right? Yeah. So we have Kate relying on William Stewart to run the actual site of Alexandria, right? Uh, we have Martha relying on James Anderson and, and many other men throughout the years for to make sure accounts are drawn and paid and bills are paid and so and so and forth and so forth. But um, then we also have Annie who, uh, it's kind of funny, with her son-in-law, She's not like him when he's trying to take control of this over her. However, her son-in-law does take in her son um, after her death. So he ultimately is a helpful person to her and her family. But 
She's also relying on white site managers at the salt mine to also report back to her saying, so-and-so came by, they're looking for this, and then she gives the approval on that. So, yeah, I just think we need to think about, um, you know, during this time period, it's all about hierarchy, right? We also have racial hierarchy, gender hierarchy, but we also have the intersection of um, gender and class hierarchy where we have these wealthy women still relying on lower class males to do a lot of the dirty work for them, even if they're in charge. So they're trying to maintain a a status of gentility while somebody else is actually doing, quote unquote, the dirty work. Yes. Though as the owners or the managers, these women are setting the rules Mm -hmm. and they know what they're doing and it's up to these men to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Because they're the boss. Yeah, that's right. Well, I want to turn back to Kate for just a minute uh, because you had mentioned that, you know, she never married. Um, She was running the show essentially uh, because she owned these nail manufactories and was running a plantation. So she's running a proto-industrial enterprise. She's also running a, a, what you would think of as a a stereotypical Virginia plantation. Um, But she mentioned that she had some education in London and Edinburgh. Um, But I wonder if you would also talk about something that I think points to her education and her intellectual ability. When somebody contacted you about an Encyclopedia Britannica, Yes, this was a historian's dream. This is the light of my life, (laughs) what just (laughs) happened. So this happened last year. So thank you. So excited to talk about it. So last year, I received an email from Bill. And this email said, Dear Alexi, when is your book on Catherine Flood McCall going to come out? Thanks, Bill. So I emailed back, Dear Mr. Bill, so nice to virtually meet you. Oh, my goodness. How did this man know about this? So I just very was very gracious for his email and just said, you know, how do you know about Kate or how'd you find me? Is you know, if you're interested in her, let me know. And he wrote back, Oh, well, I'm Bill of uh, I'm Bill Beck of Beck's Antiques in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And for a couple decades I've owned this second edition, so 1780s, Encyclopedia Britannica set. And Catherine Flood McCall is a name that's scrawled on the front page of every single one. So I said, okay, Mr. Bill, (laughs) so glad to meet you. Can I come see these? (laughs) Yes, oh, yeah, sure, come on down. So I went down, and he very graciously let me sit in his beautiful antique shop taking uh, cam scanner photo after cam scanner photo Uh of all the marginalia that that Catherine left behind. And the reason why I think it's Catherine is because the handwriting seems to match the Catherine Flood McCall script, uh-huh. uh, her signature at the beginning. Um, also, the shape they're in is just brilliant. It's amazing. Yeah. So well-preserved. Also, this helped me figure out how to spell her name finally because, you know, we see it with a K, with different A's and mm-hmm. E's. On one of them, on one of these, uh, one of volume of this whole set, instead of the name Catherine Flood McCall, like, signature in it. Instead, there were let, uh, numbers underneath the letters of the frontispiece, which said, like, you know, this is Encyclopedia, published by so-and-so, published here right. and there, just like that kind of title page. But there was numbers, like, one, two, three, four, and the number one was under a C. 
Number two was under an A. Number three was under a T, four oh. H, five A, and so on. So yeah. I figured out it was Catharin, so C-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E. And it, all these numbers go through and spell Catherine Flood McCall. <laughs> That's nuts. <laughs> it was nuts. It was great. So I was like, this is, you can just imagine it was her as like, in her 20s, just like kind of playing around, yeah. like doing a little code for herself of her name, right? So that was an amazing find. I'm still going through the marginalia, mm-hmm. but I can tell that she is interested in natural sciences. Mm-hmm. And she definitely received an elite education for this time period. And uh, I, I do wonder if any of it had to do with her later business acumen. I think, though, that business acumen is ultimately taught from her father or the people that you're married to for for these women because this is not something women are taught in the academy of how to run a business or keep, you know. I think later on in the 19th century, there's more of a push for arithmetic and account keeping, and that has to do with the experience Mm -hmm. of Revolutionary War, right, women taking over the home and the businesses while men are oh, fighting. Sure. You know, Catherine right. Green and Abigail mm-hmm. Adams and mm-hmm. Lucy Knox, they were all, they all took over their business, uh, the family business, their husband's businesses while the war's going on. Mm-hmm. And so and then... They made damn sure that their husbands knew that they were kind of in charge now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's where you have women's academies being founded all, yeah. all over during the New Republic. And um, they're finally teaching account keeping and, and math. But mm-hmm. this was not really so during... It's more of a practical education on the ground. Right, yeah. So I think Kate learned what she learned business-wise from her dad. And what's also interesting about their relationship as a femme soul, I think think Kate and Archibald give us a window into the cultural or familial ramifications of the law at this time. So Kate was very wealthy, mostly because of her grandpa on -hmm. her mom's side. So her dead mother had... A mother and father, right? And her that grandfather was Dr. Nicholas Flood, a wealthy, wealthy doctor man in Tappahannock. And Catherine, his daughter, was his only child. So Kate McCall's mom, uh-huh. Catherine, was the only child of Dr. Flood. And so inheritance-wise, there's no men. There's only one right. girl. Everything went to Catherine. Right. The daughter or... Kate's mother. And then upon her death, that technically that kind of property is managed by Archibald as the widowed husband. But the minute Archibald dies, all of that goes to Kate McCall. Right. Again, because there's no male heirs and there's only one child and it's a woman. So imagine Kate, being in her teens and 20s, sought after by many suitors, Robert Hunter included, also William Stewart, her manager, who was secretly in love with her, but that was never going to happen. But she's sought after by many suitors. She always says, no, no, I could never leave my poor father. I'm the only child he has. I'm the only family he has at this point, which is not true. He has, you know, cousins and brothers, but I'm I'm his only child. I could never leave my father. Interestingly... Archibald, I've seen I've seen evidence of Archibald saying, "Oh, you want to marry my daughter? Okay, well, I just need to check out your contacts back in Europe, back in the UK, mm-hmm. make sure everything works out." And somehow it never worked yeah. out for any suitor. Didn't like his LinkedIn profile. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, but what I actually think is going on is, well, okay, during this period, most of the time, a father wants their daughter to get married because ultimately daughters are financial burdens. And so a father wants their daughter to get married because mm-hmm. then that husband takes on that financial burden away from the father. Well, I don't think Archibald wanted Kate to get married because the minute she gets married, it's that husband, it's that man who controls all of Dr. Nicholas's Flood's incredible property sure. that actually is Kate's. Yeah. But as long as she's single, while Archibald doesn't literally own it, he can influence it. Yeah. He can. He is the father of an ch- unmarried woman, so the two of them are doing what they want with her property, right? So this is a weird, rare example yeah. of Archibald not wanting his daughter to get married, but of course not outright saying it. And I think there's some weird psychological stuff going on between yeah, the I was going to say, do you see any? You know, does Robert? I mean, H- between Hunter, father and daughter. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Yeah, you know Robert Hunter is an outside observer. He's sort of watching this. Does he give you any sense that, um, or does anybody else give you any sense that there's clearly evident tension between the two, or or just in the moments where she's I don't. So there's not. I don't think there's tension between. I don't see tension between Archibald and his daughter Kate. I think Archibald has pulled the wool over Kate's eyes in some ways. Like, you're my only child. You can never leave me. I love you. Like, this kind of stuff. Because there's some evidence where, um, in this in this diary, where Robert Hunter's friend is named Joseph Hadfield, and he's also a m- merchant's son and yeah. they're friends. And he also comes and stays with them, the McCalls, during this winter. And Robert, even though he is falling in love with Kate, Joseph suddenly is also falling in love with Kate. And in this diary, he says, like, oh, I'm going to have to give it up to Joseph. Like, he is the better man. And like, but he does mention that Joseph asks Archibald about marrying mm-hmm. Kate. And that's my, what I was mentioning earlier when he goes, okay, let me check out your con- – like, maybe, maybe yeah. we'll check out your contacts. And then later in the diary, there is an example where Joseph brings – as a gift, brings to Kate some books and – Archibald is very angry yeah. and like right to my, and is very angry about this gift. I don't know what the books were. I don't know why he was so angry. Maybe the encyclopedia. <laughs> Maybe the encyclopedia, right? But obviously, he Kate is an educated woman. Mm-hmm. She's been reading books her whole life. I don't think books were the problem. Yeah, I think it was an excuse for Archibald to get mad about something to say, "Oh, you can't marry him." Yeah. Now, how many times did he do this to Kate? I don't know, but she did have many suitors. So why didn't she get married? We also cannot, um, we can't cross out the possibility of the queer history here that we don't know. Mm -hmm. It's very possible that Kate was not interested in men romantically or and so forth. The the way that Joseph writes about her flirting with him and Joseph, I don't think that's the case. I think she's what we consider today a straight woman. So I don't think that's the case, but we cannot Mm -hmm. say that for certain either. So I do want to keep that possibility out there. And, and all these guys are well aware, too, that she is coming to tremendous wealth. Exactly, yes. And so they have a, they yes. maybe see a pathway to their own social standing and economic Absolutely. standing through her. Absolutely, yes. So she's, she dies childless, unmarried in Georgetown in 1828, and she leaves most of her property to her friends in Richmond, who are women. 
Very nice. Yes. It's some kind of a fitting end to that particular story. It is story, a fitting end, it? yes. I personally, uh, I'm fond of her in that way. I'm not yeah. fond of her as a slave manager, right. of course, but uh, I don't know. I think she was taken for a ride in some ways by her dad, but then at the end of the day, she was an adult that ultimately could have chose mm-hmm. to do what she wanted, dad's approval or not, and she did not get married. Did not do it. And she did not do it. So let, let's talk about um, your evidentiary base here for a second, because we, you know, you mentioned that you've got the diary of Robert Hunter. Um, you've got this legal case from the Essex County Courthouse, which supplied a wealth of material. Um, and you mentioned tax lists. Um, where have you gone, uh, besides Mount Vernon, um, <laughs> to, tell, to find the evidence to help you tell this story? Sure. So most of Kate McCall's stuff is in Virginia, so Library of Virginia, but also the Essex County um, District Clerk Office, different courthouses Mm -hmm. in Tappahannock, which is what I went to earlier this month. Um, Most of the documentary uh, evidence for Annie is at the Filson Historical Society, which is in Louisville, Kentucky. And it's the Bullet family papers there, mm-hmm. if anyone's interested. So that's where her accounts and her letters are. So that's fascinating. And then recently, uh, I, I had the, the chance to go to the UK to do some research. So I've done research in um, the National Records in Kew and London, also or the National Archives, and then the National Records of Scotland and Edinburgh, as well as the Mitchell Library in Glasgow. So for the Scotland trips, I was really looking at um, Archibald McCall's dad and mm-hmm. grandpa, who were uh, his grandpa was a dean of guild, and they oh, were okay. a wealthy yeah. um, merchant family. So I was kind of just looking at. And they're operating out of Glasgow. Mm-hmm, they're operating out of Glasgow, so I'm looking at kind of the merchant origins of this Archibald guy. Um, so that's kind of what brought me there, and then uh, for. The National Archives in London, what originally brought me there is uh, just kind of bits and pieces related yeah. to Kate. Um, but what I'm about to work on for a chapter is looking at um, loyalist women's and mostly widows' um, claims to the Claims Commission mm-hmm. from Virginia. So I'm looking at uh, kind of the gendered language they use, um, the kind of strategies they use in order to get uh, reimbursed for the losses that yeah. they incurred during the American Revolution as loyalist women. So so just, just for our, our listeners who may not have heard of the Claims Commission before, um, in 1783, Parliament establishes the American Loyalist Claims Commission which allows American refugees and British citizens who had suffered losses uh, during the Revolutionary War to apply to the government for compensation. And so you're looking at uh, women in particular who have applied Mm -hmm. for compensation, women loyalists who had fled Virginia Mm -hmm. in that period. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'm excited to look at those. I'm delving into them right now. Yeah. We'll see what I find. And if anyone's never read through them before, and they're actually available on Ancestry.com, mm-hmm. a lot of them, they are delicious. Yeah. I mean, and our good friend Stephanie Seal Walters has been leading the charge to help get a lot of these digitized properly. So I'm hugely indebted to Stephanie. Yeah. Her work's amazing, and she's a great, generous scholar with her own work. She is, in, is indeed. So that's sort of one of my great life goals is to... Is to <laughs> help see that through any way I possibly can. Yes. Um, well, what's coming down the pike next for you? Because you're you're getting close to wrapping this project up, mm-hmm. and um, 
finishing your degree. Uh, do you have a mm-hmm. second project in mind that might be appealing to employers, perhaps? <laughs> Why, yes, Jim, I do have a second <laughs> a project in mind. Yeah, so one of my chapters in my dissertation looks at McCall's Nailery in Richmond, and I'm looking at the nail market in Richmond during that time, and I have discovered that she's competing directly with a state-owned institution, the Virginia State Penitentiary, which is founded in 1800 but ultimately becomes profitable in 1807. And since she's founding, since McCall is founding her nailery there in 1806, they interact. Um, And I'm looking at their advertisements, and they are directly competing with each other. Ah, yes. Yeah. So there's ads that show because the penitentiary has lowered their price, you know, one cent in the pound. I, too, am going to do that to continue my the favors of my own customers. And so uh, the ads stop by 1814 on McCall's end. So I'm looking at all the other private firms that the Virginia State Penitentiary yeah. might have undersold during this time period. And how ironic, given that this is the early republic, a time period where you are supposed to be an independent proprietor, you were able to run your mm-hmm. own business, right? Well, what about when the state undersells you? What's, what's also right. ironic. Yeah. And what's also ironic about in this- In Jefferson's yeah. Virginia, no less. In Jefferson's Virginia. Oh, funny how he has a nailery at Mulberry Row. And mm-hmm. so I'm actually- um, Starting Monday, I am a short-term fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies, which is at Monticello in Charlottesville, and I am looking at the Mulberry Roll nailery in the sense of nail markets. So, like, mm-hmm. where is Jefferson selling these nails to? Um, what kind of profit is he receiving? I think he is in direct competition with McCall and the Virginia State Penitentiary yeah. because his his nailery also goes under around the same time as McCall's does. Oh, that's and around the same time the Virginia State Penitentiary hits its peak profits. Yeah. And so what's interesting about the Virginia State Penitentiary is that the very first thing they set up is a nail manufactory. They end oh. up making shoes and axes and hose and water buckets and so and so. First thing they set up is a nail cutting machine. So they're trying to tap factory. into that. They're trying to tap into a hot growth. market. Yes. And so what's also fascinating about this project is that historians have shown that penitentiaries were a new style of confinement for prisoners at this time. And it was seen as an enlightened enterprise because, hey, we'll take criminals, we'll teach them a skill, a trade. So when they go back out there, they'll have a a skill to sell and they won't revert back into crime. Mm -hmm. So this will be good. And also by making goods here at the penitentiary that we sell to the public – the public will feel better about their taxpayer dollars yeah. supporting this penitentiary because they can buy goods made there. So that that logic is all well and good, but if, if you're the Virginia State Penitentiary and you put other people out of business, then your prisoners go back, they, they learn how to make nails, and then they have nowhere to sell their labor to. Yeah. And then maybe they'll end up right back in the penitentiary. Right back in recidivism. Isn't that... So you and you've also got penal labor com- <laughs> yes. competing with slave labor. Yes, we have competing forms of unfree labor that have uh, the potential to. Uh, the potential of this project is to look at competing forms of unfree labor. What's more efficient? How do we define efficiency? Yeah. And the racist underpinnings of so that as well. Kind of a look at um, the emerging capitalist order then. Absolutely. In the early republic. Yeah, and how prison labor was essential as well as slave labor. Yeah. Well. 
it seems like you have a full docket <laughs> over the next few months. Um, yeah. And, of course, we wish you the best of luck. Thank and you. And when, uh, when it's all said and done, come back and see us. Absolutely. Can't wait. Thank, Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our sound engineer was Mason Shelby. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as more research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.